Hi, welcome to Parenting the Adlerian Way. I'm your host, Adlerian family counselor and parenting expert, Allison Schaefer. Each week, I answer your burning parenting questions to help reduce the stress of parenting one tip at a time. We'll explore Adlerian psychology together and learn methods of child guidance for raising a happy, confident, capable, resilient child. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com. Hi, it's Allison. Welcome back to the podcast. We have a jam packed QA session for you today. And thank you for those people that have written in to me and for your patience in um, getting your answers. And thank you because what helps one helps many. And that's why people tune in and listen. So I encourage those people to keep sending me your questions. Even if I've answered something from you before, doesn't matter. Everyone's contribution helps us understand and work with this theory more. And that's part of the, what this podcast's mission is all about. So let me get going. Hi, Allison. Hope you can answer this question on your podcast. My son attended his junior prom last week. He's 13 years old and brought a date with him. He was not forefront about announcing he was bringing a date. Another parent told me. I figured it was not a big deal to him. Since he brought a date to the prom, he started to chat and text with this person. Yesterday evening, he was chatting with her and she mentioned that she wanted to cut herself. My son said something like, why would you want to do that? That's not a good thing to do. She replied that she had cut herself in the past, so it does not hurt anymore. And she mentioned something about getting a new blade. The chat ended pretty soon after that. It was late and they both said goodnight. All of our family 
have iPads that are connected. And my son just got his iPhone phone number yesterday. So he does not know that I saw that chat. What would be the best approach to addressing this situation? I've never seen this person. First time I heard of her was two weeks ago. However, I have read books from Martin Seligman in the past. I am extremely conscious of social media and its impacts on teens and the increased depression levels these days. So I am not taking this lightly. I've been following your work for several years since the day I read your book, Breaking the Good Mom Myth. So I'm looking forward to hearing from you. Well, um, thank you very much for reaching out. And um, this has a lot of elements to it. So um, let me break this down into the, the various elements. The first is you've got a privacy issue here, meaning you are being apprised to private conversations that he's having with somebody and you need to have a conversation about what you can and cannot see on his devices. Since he has just gotten an iPhone, he's 13 years old. I'm a really big proponent of helping our kids understand that while they are learning to be good digital media citizens of the world, that as parents, we have a responsibility to make sure that they are managing their way in this big new world. And so that while you're not necessarily spying and you don't want to get into their privacy and all of that, they, they deserve the respect of that. You do have an obligation to make sure that they're safe. And so you need to do a few spot checks. And the more that you see as you're spot checking that they are managing themselves well, the less you have to check. And you also want them to know that, you know, their life is getting bigger and things are going to happen online that they might not have had to address before and that you want to make sure that they perceive you and know that quite honestly, that you are here in the capacity to be somebody who helps them. So one of the problems that comes is that kids are fearful of going to their parents as a resource because they're worried about how their parents are going to judge them, judge their friends that they'll see that social media and the phone is creating problems and bringing negativity into the family or into the child's life. And they're fearful that the parent will restrict their access or take their phone away or lose their privileges. So it's really important as this is the first example, having just had his world expanded, that you really set the tone that, oh, I'm so glad that uh, we have each other to lean on to help you navigate that. That must've been a scary text you know, I, I, I trust you to manage it, but I'm here to give you some guidance around that. You probably haven't had anybody talk to you about cutting before. So I want to educate you around that because really then it's about how, how do you navigate your role of supporting your child as your child is supporting a friend? And that is going to happen a lot on social media. There's a lot of drama on social media. Part of it, I'm saying the word drama. I don't mean that to be derogatory. I just mean Kids do talk a lot. They use this, this communication channel to, to talk about their big emotions and their problems and their feelings. And uh, there's, I guess, just that little bit more of anonymity. It's a way of connecting. And, you know, it's very easy to say like, you know, I'm only 13. I, you know, I, I haven't dealt with this yet. But those problems, you know, breakups and drug use and, you know, um, suicidality, all those things are going to start coming up into their life. And the important thing is we don't want them to go it alone. You know, we don't want them to go it alone. So this is a real opportunity to set the tone. Yeah, you know what? Your life's getting bigger. Problems get bigger. Social media makes them more on your doorstep. And, uh, you know, I'm always here for you. And um, this sounds like a bit of a tough situation, but uh, but here's what I've come to learn. And this is where I'm going to educate you. So you have to help our kids understand what cutting is about. Cutting is not necessarily 
a suicidal action. I don't want to minimize it, but usually cutting really falls into the category of non-suicidal self-harm, self-injury. And that has a very different goal orientation. Feeling that life is so hopeless that you want to end it as a solution to ending your misery is what suicidality is about. Whereas cutting or burning, we we often see burning, um, those non-suicidal self-injurious behaviors, headbanging you see in kids, that's a, that's a different, we're talking about a different phenomena. You know, there's a small overlap. It's not to say that kids that aren't suicidal don't sometimes also cut, but really it's like a, a Venn diagram and there's a small overlap, but generally we're talking about two separate things. So when we're looking at cutting or non-suicidal self-injury, we're really looking at kids that are in emotional pain and they're having a self-regulation issue. They have a lot of pain. It's You have to think about the activation of the fight, freeze, flee, um, sort of anxiety, stress response. And when that gets really, really high, there's sort of a feeling of loss of control or dissociation. And that feeling is so scary that one of the ways that kids have figured out how to resolve that, solve the problem for that dissociative feeling is to regain a sense of control by by creating pain. And so when I'm in pain, I feel like I'm now I can focus on the pain of my cut rather than the pain of my psyche. And it's me that's imposing the the gash. So I'm in control as opposed to out of control. I'm focused, I'm getting feeling more in my body rather than out of my body. Um, And that tends to bring down the anxious dissociative feelings. So it's a solution to a problem that's an emotional regulation problem that relates back to them feeling some some great psychic pain in their life. You know, and if she's only a 13 year old girl, you know, she may not have a lot of coping mechanisms yet. So you know, I would coach your son so that, you know, you can say, yeah, well, that's, that's, that's a really scary, you know, she must have a lot going on in her life. That's more than, than a 13 year old can manage. And she really needs some support systems and some better coping strategies. Um, but those are best given to her by professionals and her parents. And, um, you know, while friends can certainly be, you know, kind and uh, create a community around people, um, it's really outside the scope of what you would think a friend could help with. So I would say, you know, I'm so sorry you're having a hard time. You're a really good person. You don't deserve to suffer this way. There's help for you. Have you talked to Kids Helpline? Can you talk to your parents? Would they get you a therapist? Could you talk to a school counselor? So like, I would just be really wanting to say like, you know, I'm. Uh, you don't have to feel this way. There's solutions out there. There's people that would care for you and, and try to get some resources. And if it continues to go on, you can keep feeding back to your parent and she can see whether or not, that, you know, that as a parent, we might need to reach out to a school principal, a teacher, their parents or whatever, and take it to the next level. But as I say, these are not usually life-threatening things. It's just really, you know, a, a kid in distress. Um, and then you can really thank him for being, you know, it's, you know, she really divulged something very personal to you. And that really says something about you and, and your trustworthiness and, um, you know, that people will open up to you. So isn't it great that you can be a good friend to people? Um, but look after yourself too, because sometimes when we are so, so approachable, 
Um, sometimes we can also have trouble with our own self-care and setting limits and boundaries, and we can end up being kind of like the lay therapist to all of our friends and their problems. So hopefully that won't happen, but I would, um, I would use it as an education to him about how to be a support, uh, that setting that tone of the relationship with you, teaching him about, um, about a non-suicidal self-injury and, using it as an example of when things come up in social media, I'm here and I've got your back and keep, keep bringing me things like this so that we can navigate them together. I think that's really, really the big takeaway there. And, you know, at 13 at prom, you know, they're, that's, that's, that's early for, you know, they're kind of, they're, they're, they're kind of walking through what relationships might be. They're just, they're, they're, they're practicing. Don't, don't overlay your adult ideas onto what's going on in a 13 year old's brain. So, um, okay. Thank you for that question. Moving along. So I had a couple of uh, emails back and forth with the, just to get enough information to answer the, the question here. Um, and so I have a woman who's, um, says, Allison, I'd love to get your advice on a growing blended family problem that we're having. My husband's ex is what would be categorized as very high conflict. I would say my husband tries his best to follow a parallel parenting model, but his ex does not. She's very aggressive, controlling, verbally abusive to my husband, and emotionally abusive to the kids. Mostly horrible uh, discussions with the kids about what she thinks of their dad, reading them emails and telling them situations from her opinion as truth to the kids. She has recently started targeting me in these emails. My husband has a 10 year old and she has a lot of trouble with friendships and bullying at school. She's cried to us multiple times about struggling and about two weeks ago, she brought this up again. We bought her a book on growing friendships to give her some positive reinforcement and support on ideas of how to handle this. And her mother saw the book this past weekend and sent a horrible email about how we are targeting her, tearing her personality down and abusing her mentally with these types of books. She made an additional comment that his wife, me, is not welcome to give my opinion on anything and is warning me to stay out of the kids' lives. Lastly, his daughter has now begun repeating everything we say, twisting words to her mom and very much making it seem that we are now attacking her. His daughter has made accusations about me being mean to her, and yet I never yell, fight, or use negative speak when I talk to the children. After a re recent disagreement with his daughter, she became very rude to me, and I simply asked her to stop and calm down. I asked if she would appreciate being spoken to the way she's speaking to me, and she said no. I said that I wouldn't engage with anyone who talks to me that way. She finished doing what she wanted to do and went to school. I am very much frustrated and scared for the kids. This is a repeated theme about two or three times a year. I need help addressing this. It is becoming problematic. So uh, thank you very much for the question. And I am, again, so sorry that um, this is a, a marriage that has ended. And it sounds from your description, it is a, uh, you know, to your point, high conflict divorce. It sounds from the descriptions uh, that the mother is lacking in some of her emotional maturity, perhaps because of her childhood, her emotional baggage that she brought to it. Um, because normally we would expect that adults would, you know, have um, a child-centric, kids-first sort of um, approach and attitude, and that they would have some common sense about why it would be hard and harmful um, on kids to berate a, a fellow, uh, the other parent. But she doesn't have that. You can tell she's not exercising these capacities, and I'm going to guess that it's because she doesn't have these capacities. So you're dealing someone who's got their own mental health struggles, as far as I can tell. 
Now the question becomes, what do you do about that? Well, it's really about what are the variables we can control and what are the variables that we can't control? I don't think any amount of conversation is going to bring her around. She needs her own therapy. So I can tell you that. Uh, so the question is, what's the best of what you can control? And um, first of all, the fact that it only happens two or three times a year is actually a good sign because it could be completely ongoing. So I would I would call that a, a lower incident rate. Uh, I would definitely be keeping a record of transgressions because um, one of the mistakes that happens is things can get worse and worse and worse and you may decide that it's gotten so abhorrent that uh, she's not able to care for the kids and you no longer want to do joint custody or shared custody and you may want full custody of the kids if she's not competent and if you don't have a track record of the emails the things done the dates like really have the specifics so that you've got a log and, an, uh, and a, a journal entry. Um, the second thing is because she is sharing content with the kids, we have to be very careful about what you communicate with her. And so you either need to do it through, the courts often have a, um, a parent log um, for, for high conflict divorces. There, there are apps that mediators use for parents communicating so that it's not just exchanging phone numbers and then texting each other. Um, and that way there's like another eyes on the communication that kind of helps people rein it in. Um, so you might want to go to that kind of an app. Um, if she doesn't agree to that or you can't get that going, just be very cognizant of the fact that you know, don't write anything that you wouldn't want your child to read and just be very um, factual. Uh, do not use it as a place to air conflict, but just to do exchanges like, you know, when will the kids be dropped off and who's picking who up at camp and, you know, um, make sure that they have their knapsack when, you know, the, the, the basic stuff, the minimum stuff that you have to cover off and don't engage in any of the vitriol or any of the slanderous conversation at all, period. And to that end, I would say, you know, the what happens with children is when we have sort of an attempt at parental alienation, you know, kids just misbehaving and being mean to their parents and their step parents, because there's always going to be that in a kid's life. There always is. Um, but parental alienation really is a different animal. And there's certainly books you can read on parental alienation. You can follow Jamie Scridgemore's uh, step parenting podcast and, and blogs as well. She's a great, she's a great resource for some of the minutiae of what you're going through and it'll make you feel supported that you're not the only one. It's not just your family. It's not just his wife. It's not just these kids. Um, it's a pretty common phenomena. But there's some very big differentiators between how kids behave in parental alienation than how they act when they're just angry at their parents. And so I think being able to differentiate those might be helpful for you. Um, but you can see that anytime kids have a split loyalty, you know, if I'm kind to my stepmother, then will my mother think that I'm rejecting her and as, you know, as dysfunctional as that relationship might be, you know, kids still have an attachment need to feel love from their primary biological parent. And, you know, um, how do I resolve this problem of loving my mother and yet trying to love my stepmother um, that feels like if i love one i can't love the other and that's part of where that little double bind comes so from your perspective i would say that modeling is the number one thing we can't control what happens at her household you can't control what she says about you but kids learn experientially so your job is to stay emotionally regulated yourself to kind of put on 
a sort of like a Teflon jacket. So when you hear these words, even though you might want to fly into defense mode and it might make you reactive, it's about using your own self-regulation, hearing the words and letting them hit your your jacket and let it slide off the Teflon surface and just land on the floor so you don't internalize it, personalize it, um, get reactive around it. And that's both from the child and from the mother. So, and then just model good, healthy, respectful relationships, limits and boundaries. And I think within the limits and boundaries, I would agree that dad, uh, I know you're, you're, um, uh, married now, um, but it does help if the father does the lion's share of the disciplining. Now, when I say that, I want to be really clear. This is another reason I don't want to overburden dad. It doesn't mean that you ignore things going on in the house, but it means that if you have family meetings, I'm a big proponent of family meetings, as you know, if you have family meetings and you discuss together as a family that, um, you know, plates need to be taken from the table and put in the dishwasher after dinner, and then you have a conversation about what should happen if dinner is over and people don't put their plates in the dishwasher, and then you come up with a consequence around that, then you, as somebody who was at that meeting that's uh, holding up the family agreements between this new family arrangement, then you can say, hey, you know, remember at the family meeting when we talked about the plates, um, what did we say was going to happen or, or however it is, then you can, then you can step in and that would be an appropriate um, place for being an, an adult parental figure, holding limits and boundaries and fulfilling your, your responsibilities. But for new things that haven't come up, I would probably default to dad until it could make it onto a family meeting. So it could be handled in a more team egalitarian kind of a manner. Um, and, uh, and in terms of her being disrespectful to you, you know, I like what you said, you know, I don't let people talk to me like that. I hope you don't let people talk to you that way either. I, I think that showed you showing respect. The only thing I would say is we have a bit of a, an expression that I think is super helpful, which is we say connect before correct. And I sometimes say active listening. I use, you know, but you could use the word connection. What's something that you could do connect before you make that statement of correction? So I might say something like, it looks like you're really having a tough day and you're really angry at me right now. You didn't really, you didn't like that new rule or um, whatever it might be. Some Something that comes from compassion, understanding, or like, I'm sorry, it must be hard to to be a kid who's got to jump back and forth between two households and and juggle the rules like that. That must be tough. But still, our rule is that the Wi-Fi goes off at six o'clock. So I'm sorry that it's, I'm sorry you're having to struggle with those differences. So just something that is compassionate, empathetic, listening before doing the correction or, or you know, chalking that boundary um, uh, might make things land a little bit, a uh, little bit smoother and getting those family meetings will help too. And then that's sort of the limit, that's the limit of your control and you have to have enough faith that while she might be a little confused by it in the moment, the one thing I can tell you, having been in this business for 20 plus years, when kids grow and age out of the family, they will start to realize and recognize it isn't the Disney dad and the you know police parent, you know, good cop, bad cop. They do start to see the difference between a healthy home and an unhealthy home. And you're not responsible for pushing that realization any faster than it's going to come. You just have to have the faith that you're just doing what you can do in your household um, with your influence, with the decisions that you are in control of and can make and um, and know that that will be good enough. And with time, they will see, um, even though bedtime was earlier, we couldn't have snacks 
after such and such a time or whatever. Um, but I also, I didn't get yelled at and I was asked to participate and you know, yeah, I had to like load the dishwasher. It wasn't all done for me, but there was no yelling and I felt good helping out. And that seems reasonable. So those wisdom pieces might come later, but you just have to plow on with the part that, um, that you're working on. So I hope that's helpful. And of course, if things stay, you know, uh, tense, uh, again, counseling, mediation, you know, you could level it up. I don't necessarily always think that lawyering up is the best way when with these things, because that just kind of can add fuel to the fire. I mean, stay protected, but there is also more compassionate mediation that can help too, depending on how the parties are getting along. So food for thought. Parents of children that are aged two to seven, I have a new webinar for you. I don't usually put a webinar on in the summer, but uh, this time I really thought it was important. And this is a webinar that is focusing on how to get our kids school prepared for September. And that is whether they're going off to nursery school or kindergarten. We're finding that kids are a little bit in delayed lag time and we wanna use this summer to do some training. So some of what we'll be talking about then is how to set limits and boundaries, how to set expectations, training for some independence, establishing that morning routine so you're not fighting to hit that nine o'clock alarm, dealing with some of those kids that still aren't potty trained even though that's expected of them, and understanding what we can do to help our kids learn how to play cooperatively now so that when they're playing with their friends in the classroom, they've got some basic skills and anything that you bring that you'd like to ask and talk about. So hope you can join us. Registration link is in the show notes. See you soon. And here's our last one here, although it comes comes with multiple pieces. Hi there, Allison. Great to meet you at the conference in Denver. So for those people that have been following along, we have a, a, um, a national organization called NASAP, the North American Association of Adlerian Psychology. I'm actually on the board this year in the position of treasurer, which is great. Um, but we get together once a year and we just had our conference in June in Denver. So I was uh, encouraging her to submit questions, and so she did. Here's a few questions um, that I have for you. Do you have a full episode dedicated to what the Adlerian method is in regards to child rearing? I've shared episodes to uh, friends and employers, etc., but never saw one that explains it all out, the principles, the ideals, and how it applies to different ages of children, etc. I feel like I've slowly learned everything along the journey of listening to all episodes, but even semi-recently learned another bit that I can't quite remember, but seems to be a fairly big principle in the whole philosophy that I hadn't heard yet. So I appreciate your question, and I agree when you're listening to it um, in this format, it's not necessarily laid out in a way for, um, you know, the way it would be as a, as a syllabus per se. And to that end, not through the podcast, but I am in the process of, of developing a online basic course. So watch for that. Um, another idea could be to listen to the first episode, the introductory episode. I tried to give a bit of a framework there. And then my third piece would be try reading Honey, I Wrecked the Kids because there's other different content in Breaking the Good Mom Myth. But in Honey, I Wrecked the Kids, that kind of, I, I kind of give like a, an overview of uh, Adlerian psychology and, and get into the, the, the guiding behavior piece. So, um, so you could check out the books. There's, there's great child guidance books um, in Adlerian psychology. Jane Nelson has all the positive discipline series. 
um, step, pep. There's many full, full programs and books. If you go to the resource page on my website, you'll see books. But look for that online course because I think that's going to be the winner, winner, chicken dinner for you there. All right. And then let's move on to the next question. I'm a nanny to a two-year-old who has a newborn three-month-old sibling. And the two-year-old is having issues going to bed at night. The parents had help from a sleep consultant when he was about 20 months old. And since I started nannying for him at 22 months, he's been a good, great sleeper. No issues with nap. He was being put down usually by dad, sometimes mom, with the typical bedtime routine of brushing teeth, story, sleep sack, in the crib and kisses. He fusses and cries for mm, five, 10 minutes and then lays down and sleeps mostly through the night. A few weeks ago, I left town for a week and came back to here. The nightly routine had gotten complicated. Dad is now laying on a mattress next to the two-year-old, holding his hand for 30 to 60 minutes before kiddo goes to sleep. Dad will go back to his own bedroom to sleep. Two-year-old will often wake up in the night and cries for dad to come back. Dad will go in and do it over. I spoke with dad last week about how he feels about it all, asking if he enjoys the closeness or if it's more just him doing what he has to do. Dad acknowledged that this is mostly survival mode because he wants the kid to sleep and hearing him scream for him causes a lot of anxiety. I suggested dad could sleep in the basement to get away from the sound. Currently, dad takes over baby care at 4, 4.30 a.m. so mom can get some uninterrupted sleep and that's another factor. I want everyone to get the sleep they need, have good sleep habits, and be better humans for each other. Any advice I could give my nanny bosses that reassures the two-year-old, but also lets my bosses sleep? Thank you. Um, yeah, well, so I think one thing that you could point out to them is the fact that um, they've had success in the past. So it's, I don't believe in the word regression because it's not, that's a very Freudian concept. It's not regression that way. Um, but what I mean is even with potty training, there's a difference between a child who's never potty trained and a kid who's potty trained and then, and then stops, um, using the facilities. So, um, he's making different choices. So it's, again, it's kind of like the difference between can't and won't the child can't get himself to sleep versus the child won't get himself to sleep or, or won't make it through the night. He's clearly shown the capacity that he can fall asleep, get himself settled and make it through the night. And now he's choosing not to. And so I would point that out to the parents. Can't versus won't is the first concept. The second piece is about goal-directed behavior. So what's that about? What was the change? And um, if we can get them to see the connection between what is the usefulness or the benefit of not settling? What's the usefulness and the benefit of crying out at night? And if you can get them to see that that is a, a child who has put together you know, when I cry and squawk, I will get social connection with my parent and that I can do that at any time I please. And I would rather um, nicer to have a parent beside me than to settle myself who wouldn't cry and squawk. But when they learn through experience that it doesn't matter if I cry and squawk for five or 10 minutes, nobody's coming, I might as well settle myself in. And then he gets on to sleep. But now he's got different learning. If I cry and squawk and carry on long enough, dad will come in. So if, if he can kind of understand how he's complicit in his, that his responsivity is part of what is fueling the dynamic. Um, so, you know, uh, I have used another example of goal-directed behavior as being, you know, if you have a dog that is barking next to an empty food bowl, why is the dog barking? Freud would say it's because the dog has a hunger drive. That's causative. 
Whereas Adler is teleological, goal-driven, and says, no, the dog has learned from a social experience um, of response to behaviors that if I bark, somebody puts kibble in my bowl. So if the baby, this two-year-old cries, then dad will come hold my hand for 30 or 60 minutes. And I like that. That's my preferred way of being. And so he's been, the dad's been inadvertently training his child to be a poor sleeper, (laughs) believe it or not. And that's not what dad wants. So I know in the short term, he's like, look, this is just survival. I just, I, I, I just need to sleep. But he also says it's about his anxiety. So that might be something that's more than a nanny can kind of unpack with him. But it might be worth asking, you know, the question about, you know, when we know that we shouldn't do something in our parenting, I shouldn't give him a snack, I shouldn't lie with him, you know, I shouldn't cave, I shouldn't give him a third chance. A lot of times parents know, they know in their mind, but they can't expedite. And that becomes an interesting area for curiosity and introspection. What's that about that? I know I shouldn't go to that cry, but I have a hard time. Yeah. Well, part of it is I just want a good night's sleep and screw it. I'll just take the shortcut tonight. But usually if it's an ongoing, it's like, well, what, what, why the anxiety? What, what is the story? What is the narrative that the parent is making about those tears? And if the parent has a belief that they are hurting, damaging, abandoning, breaking the primary attachment, if they have thoughts of that, well, what parent would stand there if they thought they were hurting their child? I don't want any parent to hurt their child. Part of our job is to convince them that when kids cry, when they don't get their way, it doesn't mean you're not hurting them. Now, and again, don't get me wrong, folks. If you want to have a communal bed, I just want for people to understand, I'm about cooperation and training children to get along with their fellow man, bar none. If getting along with your fellow man is sharing a bed, but everyone gets a good night's sleep and all members in that bed agree to it, have a great time. I got no judgment there. But if two people want to make love or need a good night's sleep and they don't want a kid kicking them in the gut and getting in the way of their sex life and they'd prefer to have separate beds, that is not being unfairly demanding on a child. Um, we can train our kids that, you know, you're, you're being trained for society where sometimes we sleep together. Sometimes we sleep apart. Sometimes we share a hotel room and other times we're at home and we have our own bedrooms. Sometimes you sleep with a cousin. Sometimes you sleep in your own bed, but they need to have that capacity to be able to not be dependent on another human being for their, for their sleep and, uh, and to get themselves settled in the situation that they're in. Some people can fall asleep standing up on a subway car. (laughs) So training to take consideration for the needs of the situation and other people's um, needs and desires in the family is all part of this. And so to be able to say, yes, we socialize, but we socialize between the hours of 9 or whatever, 7 a.m. and, uh, you know, 7 p.m. And then after that, parents aren't available, whereas he's kind of got the idea, um, you know, you should be there at my every beck and call and I'm going to squawk until I get my way, then the child is inadvertently learning demanding behavior is getting what they want and just basically put the thin end of the wedge in and get yourself upset until a parent comes and deals with you. Because if they learn that, then they're going to say, well, you know, if they want to have candy floss for breakfast, well, just cry and dig your heels in until until uh, you get your candy floss. And if you don't want to go to preschool and you look at the teacher and you don't know anyone in your classroom and you're like, no, I want you to homeschool me. I'm going to dig my heels in because I don't want to go into that unfamiliar situation. You're going to have a kid who learns to use upset and emotionality to get his way. And you just can't always get your way in life, right? You have to face challenges. You have to face uncomfortable situations. That's the reality of life. So 
if the parent can understand that, and maybe it's just getting them to listen to this podcast, but if they can see a different narrative. So if you play the tape, I'm ruining my kid, my kid's being damaged. Yeah, you're going to go to them. If you can change that narrative up and say, "Mm, no, actually, I've taken some parent education. I am now... um, being uh, complicit in teaching my child that demanding behavior helps them get their way. And at two, they can manage this. They've done it in the past. A few tears are hard to listen to. um, And that's painful. I used to put a timer on myself. I go, okay, eight minutes. They cried for eight minutes. Oh, good tonight. They only cried for six. Oh, good tonight. They only cried for four. Um, Then uh, at least then you're telling yourself a different story of what the phenomena and the dynamic is in the moment. Um, But like I said, I got, if you want to, if, if, if he's okay, sleeping on a mattress in your bedroom in a sleeping bag and whatever, as long as it, as long as you're all cooperating, that's, that's really the big thing. Um, that's important. Okay. Um, moving along here. And, and again, don't forget that it's not uncommon for, um, uh, again, I don't believe the word regression now it's a Freudian concept, but the timing of the newborn could pose as a threat to the older child. And because babies nurse in the night, it could be that he's had this realization that little quiet one-on-one times can happen in the middle of the evening when the baby's sleeping. Um, and maybe I can get dad to myself where, where the baby's sort of taking some time and attention. So he might just be testing the boundaries and wanting a little bit more connection in one-on-one time to just secure his sense of importance and belonging in the family as this new person settles in. All right, same family here, the, the, the two-year-old and the three-month-old and the nanny. She says, transitions with dad have been rough as dad is the preferred parent. The two-year-old often will get quite mad and try to throw things. We've talked about how we feel that it's okay to be mad, but we can't throw hard things. We redirect and talk about it in the moment as well as calm ones, all the things we can throw and things we can't. Uh, when he's not able to stop, the thrown hard toys get put Um, into a calm down area to be given back the next day. So to keep them safe, the next day we talk about why he threw them and why we need to put them away the previous day. He does have these outbursts during non transitions as well, though they account for less of the time. We've gotten several good books from the library on being mad and how it's okay and things to do to help. He has really liked one of them, though he hasn't particularly been drawn to books in general. We practice taking deep breaths and a few times a day he is really good at doing so. He's the kind of kid that really seems to understand and he pays a lot of attention to what's said. I do think he gets it, just has a hard time expressing himself and managing his emotions. I'd love a few tips and a bit of advice for how I can make these situations a little less easier for everyone involved. Um, Okay, I think you're doing so much right. Um, I think books can be very helpful for kids to understand their emotions. Um, I like that you are having a consequence of removing toys um, that, you know, it's not okay. We need to feel safe. Um, toys that get thrown, get confiscated. We get them back the next day. That all seems really super reasonable. The only thing here that I'm going to try to add to this couple things then to tweak. First is I, I think there is way too much talking here. You have to remember that, um, Kids learn from what we do, not what we say. And otherwise we get into all, we're we're so concerned with being respectful to children because we came from a time when we said, do as I say, and we, and we wouldn't expect a child to challenge us. So in our attempts to be respectful to this younger generation, we get very, very verbal and we go on to these great lectures. Well, the truth is a lot of those lectures are really, you know, kids learn immediately 
They can put together cause effect immediately. And the more we go on with the talking, 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 it's actually discouraging to the child and we increase their inferiority feelings. Okay. So the general rule is never say to a child something a child already knows, right? It comes across as pontificating, lecturing, demeaning. Like I promise you, it increases their inferiority feelings. So we don't need to go over this again, right? One and done. Throw a toy, you lose the toy. No lecture, no whatever. They put it together. Oh, you know, I threw that book. Now it's on top of the fridge. I don't get it till tomorrow. On, on to the next thing. Distraction, redirection, get them re-engaged. Um, so less talking, um, do it faster, faster, swifter, immediate, every time, no discussion, just matter of fact, bygones. Um, know that that with anger, anger is an emotion that is called upon when somebody wants to gain control, win, get even, get one's way, right? It is the protest fighting emotion. And so I'm more interested in why does he want to gain control, win, and get even? What I'm more interested in what happens just prior to the outburst. I find with little people, A, they're still developing their emotional regulation apparatus. So of course they're going to get a little bit angry. They haven't, they, you're right. He isn't verbal. He can't express himself. So yes, tantrums come down as kids get older, outbursts come down, they become more reasonably individual. So he's only two. So he's probably age appropriately having his little outburst and that's just part of raising kids. So I'm not concerned about it from that point of view. Um, but how, how we respond to them, swift, calm, um, no big, no big talking. But again, I want to go back to like what those trigger points are. Kids who have these outbursts usually want more competency. Uh, angry kids want to be, they want control, autonomy, choice. They want to be self-determined. And so what more can he be doing? Can he tie his own shoes? Can he pick his own juice? Can he get his own cup? Can he close the, the door? Can he turn off the light switch? Can he pick up his toys after himself? Can he put squeeze the toothpaste on his toothbrush? Get him doing as much as he can for himself, for his independence and his autonomy, and then give him tons of choice. You know, we need to go upstairs for bath time. Do you want to walk up the stairs or slither like a snake? Um, you know, we need to go to the park. Do you want to wear the red jacket or the blue jacket? Um, uh, you know, it's, it's time to go outside. Do you want to carry your helmet or am I going to carry your helmet for the bike? Choice, 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 choice. He needs to feel like he's in control. He doesn't want to be told what to do. Ask instead of tell. Oh, you know what? It's time to go to the park. What are the two things we do before we leave the house? You've got it. We put on our sunblock and we get our shoes. You really know how to organize ourselves. Just choice, choice, choice. Ask instead of tell. Empowerment, empowerment, empowerment. I would focus on those more than focusing on the blowouts. When he has a little blowout, again, swift, no lecturing, but you can say something calming. Rub his back and say, I'm so sorry. Sounds like you're upset right now. Or sounds like things aren't going the way you anticipated. Or sounds like you're really unhappy that I said it was cleanup time when you thought we'd have more time to play. You can just say one little simple thing like that, but then move along. He has the right to be upset. That's okay. You also have the right to not be upset by his being upset. Period. <laughs> you can move away from his storm. 
All right. Those are my questions for this week. I also want for those people that have younger kids to know that I do have a, uh, if you've made it to the end of this podcast, um, I, I do have a webinar coming up. So I will um, do a little recording that we can uh, share with people too in the middle of this in case you didn't make it all through in one listening. But I uh, hope I can see you at the webinar. Uh, I'm really trying to take advantage of the summer months for those people with younger kids who are going to put their kids into preschool JKSK type programs in the fall and how we can best maximize our summer months to do some of the skills training so those kids hit the classroom prepared. The pandemic really slowed us down on some of our skills. And I know from being a classroom teacher and talking to classroom teachers, doing teacher training, uh, that they're not seeing some of these basics with the kids coming in. And so we've got a couple of months to get up to speed and that's what I wanna focus on. So. Um, Anyway, there, there'll be links in the show notes. Hope you'll share it with your friends or come join me. And again, questions at any time. Hope you have a great summer vacation set up. We'll see you next time. Bye. As you know, it takes a village to make a podcast. So thanks to my team, including Max Cotter, my editor and technician, as well as the crew at H2O Digital. This podcast was recorded in Toronto, Canada. We acknowledge the land we are meeting on is the traditional territory of many nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabek, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat people, and is now home to many diverse First Nations, Inuit and Métis. We also acknowledge that Toronto is covered by Treaty 13 with the Mississaugas of the Credit. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. 
Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.